Ephesians, Ephesians 3. We're going to start at 14. If you have a, if you have a Bible, and I pray you do, uh, if you don't, there's one in front of you. Um, feel free to take that with you. So it's become pretty clear that the world is messed up, right? It's obvious. The jig is up. The mystery has been revealed. The world is jacked up. There's no more covering up that reality. That has been made known more today than ever before, that the world is crazy. But that's not the question we're trying to answer, is if it is, the question we're trying to answer is how do we function in it? How do we as Christians dwell in it? How do we, how do we, how do we function in a world where uh, thrives on this new sexual revolution that has evolved? How do we as Delray Baptists interact with a culture that has made much of selfism and and, and meism and, and, and every other ism that you can think of? How do we, as a, as a as Christian community, interact in a world where abortion has become more and more normal? How do we, as Delray Baptists, walk in a manner worthy of our calling? Well, I think Paul's prayer in the middle of Ephesians can help us here. The reason I believe that is because he does not go straight to the how-tos. He doesn't just give you uh, the, the top 10 ways that white evangelicals can relate to black evangelicals. He doesn't just give you an article or a blog on how to be compassionate. He doesn't just give you little pithy blurbs that you can either apply or retweet. Well, he does something a little bit more interesting here. Now, he does get to the practical, but before he does that, he does something rather unique even for Paul. He stops in the middle of a letter and he prays for the church that they will be given strength to be in communion with Christ. To see the value in that and to see the uniqueness and beauty of that, you have to understand the book of Ephesians. So the book of Ephesians is, is a book you can literally split down the middle. On the left side, you have the origin story of the Christian, how we once walked in darkness and now have been brought into light, how we were dead and now alive, how we, um, how we were dead in our trespasses and sin, now we are alive in Christ, how we are now adopted sons and daughters of Christ. And then the second half is, in light of that, how do, you, how do you walk worthy of that calling? So one through three, this is who you are. Four through six, this is how you live it. But right there in the middle is today's prayer. Right there in the middle, I believe, Paul gives us an answer to how we function in this world. And that answer isn't a list of how to do. The answer is communion with Christ. And that's the big idea for us today. Living out our identity in Christ comes through communion with Christ. When we look closely at this prayer, we get three ways in which that can happen. Now, this, keep in mind, this isn't a comprehensive list of how to be in communion with Christ. The emphasis is not the how-to. The emphasis is communion with Christ. But as Paul is getting to that, he shows us practically what that looks like. 
And he does that in three very specific ways. He says, uh, communion with Christ happens through a desperate prayer life. Communion with Christ happens with an accessible heart. And communion with Christ happens by understanding and experiencing the love of Christ. So let's go ahead and jump in. And as you're listening to this sermon today, as you're processing and hearing God's word, I want you to be thinking about if you are a follower of Jesus today, at some point in the next hour, because I'm not Garrett, probably the next half an hour, <laughs> we're going to pray, we're going to sing, and we're going to leave out. At some point in the day, you're going to pull out your phone. If you're not a legalistic fundamentalist like I grew up to be, you, bought, you have both Facebook and Twitter on your phone. And you're going to open it, and you're going to see somebody say something horrible, and you're going to see a news article, and you're going to see the new highlights of the day. I pray that this passage here gives you the strength to understand how to function in this world. And I pray that if you don't walk away with anything else other today, that, anything else today, that you walk away, that you will not survive as a Christian in this world without communion with Christ. You were not designed to function that way. Matter of fact, God designed you in the origin story in the first half to be totally dependent on him. Let's jump in. He says this in, verse, in chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and, length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all fullness of God. So Paul starts off this prayer in the middle of this passage, in the middle of this letter, uh, and he starts it off with, for this reason. Well, we get a little bit of Bible knowledge or a little bit of grammar. We, when he, when somebody, whenever says, somebody says, for this reason, it's because of what has happened before. The gospel has been made known to non-Jews. This is a big deal, he says, for this reason. And they have received it and embraced it. And now as verse 6 puts it, the Gentiles are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul's labor and suffering and imprisonment was not in vain. Amen. It's not just a fancy mission statement. People are being saved. The dead have come alive. The Father is adopting sinners from all types of ethnic backgrounds. And for this reason, what does Paul say? Go and walk, manner, walk in a worthy manner of your calling? No. He says, for this reason, I now bow my knees to the Father. And so what we're going to see here is... Paul strategically worked through this prayer, and he's going to demonstrate for us the beauty of communion 
with Christ. And he's going to show us that this communion is what leads, allows chapter 4, 5, and 6 to take place. But this communion with Christ first happens through a desperate prayer life. He says, I bow my knees to the Father. Paul rarely stops in the middle of a letter to pray. And even more, it's rare for him to communicate his posture when he's praying. Look at him. It's not just his head or his back, but his knees are bowed. This is interesting. Paul's not just talking about a, 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 a ritual that is taking place here. Paul is not just talking about an outward appearance that can be faked. Paul is talking about the posture of his heart. You can't fake that. You can't pretend that. The posture of your heart is what it is, and Paul immediately bows his heart to the Father. He wants you to know that it's not just his body, but his heart. His heart is in a posture of submission and worship because he is going before the Father, the one who existed before eternity, the one who formed the sun and moon. And just to show off because the Father can, he rigged it that the sun and moon would literally cross tomorrow. God did that. And we get to bow before him. That's what Paul is saying to us this very moment is that in order for us to have communion with the Father, it first comes through a posture of our heart, through a desperate prayer life. He says, from whom every family on earth is named. In other words, your existence is not an accident. From the complexion of your skin to who your parents are, even if we wish they weren't, to where you grew up, To you being here today, God has overseen it all. And side note for all of you planners, this is not a, this is not a call for you to scrap your 100-year plan, right? This is a call for you to submit it to God. This is a call for us to understand that God is sovereign. He is in control. It is okay to plan, and it is okay when it doesn't go according to plan because God is still in control. The Father of heaven and earth, right? That is who Paul is praying to. And when he does this, Paul says, according to the riches of his glory. That's beautiful. Paul says, according to the riches of his glory, what he's saying here is that you can bank on the fact that God can do what I'm about to ask him to do. This is a quick reminder that what, what is about to be asked of God is more, God is more capable of doing it than anyone else. In fact, he is the only one who can do what is about to ask. What, he's the only one that can afford to give. He's the only one that can actually provide. He's the only one that we, who can give us what we need. And Paul goes before him and he says that he may grant you. Once again, look at the posture of Paul's heart. His heart is bent towards God. It's not God trying, it's not Paul trying to bend God. He understands that this is the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. And that is who he is bowing before. He understands that this, this God is, is, is rich with mercy and he is the only one that can do what we are about to ask him to do. And he says that he may grant it to you. 
Brothers and sisters, the Father loves to give good gifts. But we are not going to take anything from God. We are not going to storm the gates of the kingdom and command God to do anything. That is not how we talk to our Father. He says that he may grant it to you. So it's very clear that Paul is saying that if if, if we are going to walk in a manner of our calling, there first has to be a communion with the Father that is represented through a desperate prayer life. There is no walk for the Christian without communion with Christ through a healthy prayer life. Once again, we will not survive without it. A healthy, desperate prayer life demonstrates to the world that this is beyond our control. But it's under the control of a heavenly father who can do far more and abundantly than we could ever hope for or ask for. It represents that even though we have a president, he is not sovereign. Even though we may have elders that are brilliant and godly men, they are not sovereign. We submit it to the Father, maker of heaven and earth. So that's one. Two, we will not live out our calling without communion with Christ. And that communion happens with a weak, accessible heart. Look at verse 16 through 17. He says this, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Here, Paul gives his first petition out of two within his prayer, and he's asking for strength in both of them. And in this particular part, he's asking for strength and power through his spirit in your inner being. This is a strange petition for someone who has already received the Spirit and Christ is already dwelling in their hearts. We know that this is not a request for salvation or a completion of their salvation. Chapter 1 has made that abundantly clear. Paul, at this point, believes he is talking to people who have already been converted. The language is interesting, but essentially what Paul is asking Father to do is strengthen their inner being with power of the spirit that is already in them. Our inner being is the seat of our consciousness. It is the headquarters for our affections and actions. The very action uh, for you to get up and come here today, the very action for you to cheat or to lie or to steal or to give generously or to worship or to serve God or to serve yourself was not by accident. It came from somewhere. It came from your inner being. Becoming a Christian does not mean we no longer have this inner core that is resistant to sin. It means that in our weakness, we can seek power from the Father to begin to love what God loves and to hate what he hates. 1 Corinthians 4.16 puts it this way. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This is sanctification, y'all. Our bodies get slower, wrinkled, weaker. Every time I go to the eye doctor, my prescription just increases and increases. I'm getting older. We are getting older. 
If you're five years old, you are getting older. If you're 60 years old, you are getting older. But praise God, if you are a Christian, your inner being is getting stronger. Your inner being is growing. If you are in communion with Christ, it is thriving. It is being made stronger. You are being made mature. So we can rejoice in that. We can not fear death because we know that through the strength of the Spirit, we are being made more and more to look like Christ because we are in living communion with him. And this is the result of this prayer. This is the result of this strength. This is the result of uh, what Paul is asking. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Look at the next part. It says, dwell in your hearts through faith. Why would we need power to be in communion with Jesus who is already in us? Because we already know that he's talking to Christians. Well, once again, I don't, don't believe he's uh, saying that we need to be saved again. The key to this question is in the word dwell. Look at that word. Everybody say it together. Dwell. That word is, is, is a beautiful word. It means to, to, to set up residence. To, to live in, to settle down. In other words, Paul is asking for strength to allow Christ to make himself home in every area of our lives. Have you ever had guests come to your house? What's the first thing we say? Make yourself at home. Do we really mean that? If that's true... And you say, make yourself at home. Don't be mad at me when I'm, in my, when I'm laying in, in your bed in my pajamas watching cartoons. <laughs> Truth is, we didn't really mean it that way, right? Well, Christ does. Christ seeks to set up himself in every area of your heart. And the reason why we need strength to do that is the same reason that the Ephesian church needed strength to do that. They were converted pagans who, who, who loved to worship idols and who were magicians. And, and they lived in a world of, 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 that was filled with uh, sexual immorality and that was filled with evil. And, and then they became converted followers of Jesus. And now they had to live in that world. Did all of a sudden they now become perfect? No. And neither did we. Yes, when Christ converted us and made us new, he took up residence in our heart. But let's be honest, there were certain doors that were locked. There were certain rooms that were off limits to him. And if we are going to open those doors to him, we need the strength of the Holy Spirit. We cannot do it on our own. It says, once again, We will not survive in this world if you got closed doors in your heart to Christ. We will not be able to function the way God intended us to function, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, if there are dark rooms in our heart that is off limits to Christ. 
And so Paul is asking for strength by the Holy Spirit that, that what would happen was that there would be power to unlock those doors. There would be power to raise the curtain and that the light will shine through, that God's grace and mercy will shine on those rooms and that Christ will have access to every area of our heart. In order to live and walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have been received, we must have communion with the Father. And there's no way to have communion with the Father if there are parts of our heart that is off limits to him. Delray, what part is off limits to Christ? What rooms have been darkened by your past that is filled with guilt and shame that is, you just don't want Christ to walk through? Please understand one thing and one thing only. The grace of God is sufficient. The blood of Christ is sufficient. There is no condemnation in Christ. You no longer have to be afraid of man. He can't do anything to you. I pray that you will seek the Holy Spirit, that you will seek the Father to ask the Holy Spirit to strengthen you, to bring light into those off-limit places in your heart. It is the only way we will be able to make any dent in injustice. It was the only way we'll be able to walk in the manner of our calling until we have sweet communion with the Father. And the only way we can have sweet communion with the Father is if we make our hearts accessible to him. And then finally, number three, knowing and experiencing the love of Christ. Communion with the Father is knowing and experiencing the love of Christ. Look at the second petition, in verse, starting at verse 17. He says this, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and death, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the full, with all fullness of God. Remember, Paul is writing to saints who are well aware of, of Christ's sacrificial love. It's, it's, the, it's, the big, it's, it's necessary for salvation, that we are aware that Christ loved us so much that he died for us. Right? So he's not trying to, he's not trying to, See people converted. He is talking to saints. He is talking to us. When Paul prays the strength to comprehend and know the love of Christ, he is praying for them not to just be consciously aware of Christ's love, but to intimately experience it. Think about that. Christ wants us not just to know and comprehend the death of his love, but he wants to inter- us to intimately experience it, to intimately encounter it, to intimately be in communion with him. In Ephesus, there was this place called the Temple of Diana. This was an amazing, immense, huge, whatever word you can think of, it was the Seven, one of the seventh wonders of the ancient world. This thing was gigantic, and it was, and it was like people would come to it and call it, like literally say that it was a gift from heaven, that it floated out of the clouds, is how one historian put it. And so 
even if you were coming by sea or if you were coming by land, you saw this thing from miles away. It was about over 400 feet long. It was about over 200 feet wide. And it was, it was almost 100 feet high. And it was, it was big and beautiful and with pillars. And for the people there, it was a, it was a symbol. It represented for them this idea of fertility or this ideal of, of, of sexual pleasure or erotic uh, pleasure, and people would go there, and all kinds of debauchery would happen there, and it was for them, it was equated to their version of love. Well, Paul is trying to communicate to us that although the world can measure love, God's love has no measure. Although you can measure the width and length and size of this imperfect, perfect representation of love, that these Ephesians, converted Ephesians, had to see every day. Paul is saying you can't put any measurements on God's love and that you need the strength of the Holy Spirit to actually comprehend it. He says that it's death and length and width is immeasurable, but with, with, with God's, with the strength of the Holy Spirit, we can begin to comprehend it and not just comprehend it once we can actually experience it. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time you can say you experienced the love of Christ? I'm not talking about your salvation. Me and my wife went to the movies. And they, they, we went to this thing called the, the Dolby Theater. And it's one of those things, it's about the experience where you're, you, the movie starts and the walls start to shake and the seats start to rock and they recline. And it's, and it's in this big, amazing screen and it's this experience. Brothers, this is when you experience the love, you, 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 you will know it. You will feel it. You will can't help but to share it and to tell everybody about it. When was the last time you experienced the love of Christ? If you can't answer that question, how are you going to interact with the world that doesn't know him at all? that doesn't know his sacrificial love? How are you going to interact with a world that thinks it is okay to kill babies, that hate is normal, that to be intimate with anything or anyone is okay if you haven't experienced on a regular basis the love of Christ? Paul is praying for strength for these believers, for for that to take place. Why? Well, he says it. So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul continues the pattern of praying for what it seems, what, for the pattern of what it seems to, to, to be that, uh, for the pattern of, 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 of praying for things that Christians should already have. Ephesians one twenty three says that Paul's uh, original readers had already received the fullness of God because of their union in Christ that occurred in the previous chapters. The Ephesians church already possessed what Colossians 2.9 calls a divine fullness. God's full deity resides in Jesus and therefore he is, is, he is fully God and fully man and the fullness of Jesus resides in his people. 
and they are now fully alive with the resurrected Christ. What Christians are not, though, is perfectly mature believers who no longer sin. All of the Christian sins, past, present, and future, has been forgiven. There is no condemnation in Christ, but there is still a desire to please the flesh. When Paul says that you may be filled with the fullness of God, he is saying experience the love of Christ with the, with the church so that it results in be- you becoming everything that God intended you to be. That you will be like Christ. That you will hate what he hates, love what he loves. That you will be holy because he is holy. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that, isn't that, if you can't say amen to that, I don't know what you can say amen to. God, being rich in mercy, great in love, saw fit to adopt you as a son and daughter. Then he sealed you up with the Holy Spirit. Well, we'll get that order right when Garrett comes up. But you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, adopted as sons. And then you were given a spirit of power. And then you were given the ability to access the Father anytime. And then he says, pray. Pray that that Holy Spirit will strengthen you to do the work that you have been called to do. Why? So that you can experience his, his love. And that you can have communion with him. And that you can be filled with the fullness of God. And that you can uh, exist as a mature believer in this world. Brothers and sisters, we will not make a dent in injustice. We will not uh, uh, survive the temptations of this sexual revolution. We will not compromise on what is murder and what is not if we are not in regular communion with the Father. And that for us has to be a desperate prayer life, has to be an accessible heart, and it has to be a relationship with the Father that not only reveals the knowledge of his love, but also allows us to experience that love so that we can be full and be everything that Christ has called us to be.